My name's Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm delighted to be joined today by my old friend, Liz Kendall. Liz, we have known each other for quite a long time, haven't we? We have. Over 20 years. Over 20 years. You were my boss, Matthew. I'm not sure who was more challenged by that relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, what exactly is your job title, Liz? So I'm the Shadow Minister for Social Care. I had that role up to 2015, and then I've had a period off the front bench, but now I'm back focusing on reforming social care. And I want to ask you what the day-to-day life of an MP is like in the pandemic, but as someone who's followed your career closely, because I know you so well, I was thinking the other day, you know that game where you hide something and people have to find it and you go cooler, cooler, warmer, warmer. I was just reflecting on your career, which has been kind of warmer, warmer, then freezing cold and then warmer, warmer again. I mean, that must be a kind of strange experience to live through. Well, it is. But, you know, in the words of the great public enemy, I don't treat my highs too high or my lows too low. I've got pretty thick skin I'm delighted, actually, to be back on the front bench. I really care about this issue. And I think that change takes a long, long time. I remember Naomi Eisenstadt, you'll know Naomi, who set up Sure Start. And she always used to talk about how politicians think delivering a policy is making a speech. Civil servants think it's issuing a circular. But it's the people who actually do this on the ground that know that it's the long, hard, nitty gritty, difficult process of change that is really where you make a difference. And I suppose politics is a bit like that for me too. There's ups and downs. But if you really want to make changes. It takes a long, long time and you've got to get your hands dirty. And that's what I hope to do in this role. And speaking of you being a politician, what's the day-to-day life of an MP? We had Caroline Lucas on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about a huge amount of casework. How is your day-to-day life in lockdown? I don't think I've ever worked quite as hard as this. It's both a as Caroline said, sheer number of different issues that people are approaching you for help with. But it's also because you're in lockdown and you're not traveling, you're actually loads more productive, I find. It's very intense. You can set up meetings that would normally take months to organize. So you've got a lot on, but you can get through a lot more. What I worry about is, you know, the human contact, because people need it. If they're turning to you for help, They want to be able to express themselves. And sometimes, you know, in surgeries, it's much easier to see what's really going on face to face with people. But equally, when you're trying to get change to happen, you're talking to the people who've got the power to do that. I think sometimes, you know, it gets lost in translation in letters or emails or even Zoom. 
Whereas I think you can sometimes make your case more effectively face to face. So there's ups and downs with it. But the truth is, we're going to have to get used to it because this is what it's going to be like for a long time. What is top of the list in terms of the issues coming into you through email at the moment? In the constituency, the biggest number of issues we've had has been constituents trapped abroad and trying to get back. You know how we have a large Asian population in Leicester and people spend a lot of time in India and the Punjab and in Pakistan as well, family and friends. So we've had a huge problems with that. Second will be employees who are struggling to get the support they need from businesses, self-employed, so the sort of workplace. And we have had, you know, obviously, I get a lot of national emails around social care, but it's really been about the world of work. There was a lot of nervousness right at the beginning about furloughing, support, self-employed, trouble getting universal credit if people had lost their jobs. And I think we'll see that come back as maybe the furlough scheme changes and help for the self-employed changes too. Thanks for that insight. So, Liz, I'm going to ask you the question we ask everybody in this podcast. Liz Kendall, how do you think the world could and the world should change after this pandemic, with, of course, particular reference to care? Well, I hope that if one positive thing comes out of this awful virus, it's that we understand the importance of social care and that we realise you cannot continue to have the NHS as one system, the social care services as another system, that we understand the two are inextricably linked and that we really do begin to value and pay properly care workers and that the clap outside our doors every Thursday turns into action. But I don't believe that that will fall onto our laps, that argument. I think there's a risk that those of us on the left who've passionately believed in proper investment and reform and support for social care and a decent you know, salary and training for care workers, that that won't just be proven by this. We think it has been, but I believe we will really have to make that argument afresh because there is going to be an awful lot of pressure on the public purse. And I think my case is not just that it's the moral case for reform, but that we can't afford not to make changes because the costs of not making those changes far outweigh anybody's concern. So that's, I mean, to be honest, Matthew, if we can't at the very minimum get an actual living wage for care workers after all of this, you know, we might as well pack up and go home. So I think there is a big opportunity there, but it won't just fall into our laps. So we've been thinking about this issue as a part of a project we've been doing with Accenture, and we kind of thought of three scenarios. The first one is what we call muddling through, but with more money. So that actually there isn't really any radical reform, but because of the amount of public concern and the gaps that have been exposed, there is money thrown at the system. But in a sense, the difficult issues are still ducked. Then there's a second scenario, which is a kind of bring it all together under the NHS, a kind of more centralised, more technocratic attempt to raise standards in social care to the kind of level that we might expect from the health service in relation to kind of staffing and provision and all of that. Of course, the NHS isn't perfect, but a kind of sense of, well, people think the NHS has performed pretty well, social care has been awful, so let's bring it together under the NHS. And then there's a third scenario, which is one which stands back and looks at the system much more holistically, recognising that social care as a kind of public good emerges not just from the state 
and the market, but also emerges from families, from communities. And that the critical issue is how do you make that kind of whole ecology of care work? Do you think that it's possible that we could look at that bigger picture after the crisis? Absolutely. I mean, Matthew, you may or may not remember back in 2002 at IPPR, we published a book called From Welfare to Wellbeing, The Future of Social Care. And it started from what kind of services and support do individuals and their families and communities want and need, rather than saying, How do we put more money into an existing failing system, which is a kind of task and deliver paid by visits rather than what kind of life do people want to live? And I mean, there have been so many terrible things that have happened in social care during this epidemic, but there have been some hugely positive things too. If you just look at the different mutual aid groups that have sprung up all around the country, where if an elderly person can't get their shopping, a neighbour can bring a bag round that afternoon, you would never get that from any public or indeed private organisation that swiftly. So we have to start by what is the life that elderly and disabled people want to live, you will see that it is very much about not just the formal care and support, but family, friends, having a social life, making a contribution to the community. And then we ask, okay, how best can we together provide and deliver that? And then the last question is, how do we fund it? And the problem has been, we've always started from that last question. And you can see it with the government again saying, how do we stop people selling their homes to pay for their care? Now, that is an important question, but we need to start from that vision of social care that really matters to people. And you can only do that if people themselves are involved in drawing up that vision for the future. It cannot be a top-down vision of this is what we are going to provide for you. It has to be people themselves saying with their families, this is what we want and need. When you have a vision like that, it's important to be able to say it's not impossible that there are elements of it out there already. And we gave a prize at the RSA a few years ago to Jos de Bloch, who runs Burtzorg in the Netherlands. And what people know about that organisation is that it's cutting edge in terms of having no hierarchy, self-organising teams of domiciliary nurses, providing care. People talk about it as a very radical organisational form. But actually, when Yosterblock talks about what he does, the first thing he wants to emphasise is the model of care. He draws concentric circles. He, he wants to put the individual at the middle of that, exactly as you say, what do they want, what do they need, then the family, then the community, and only then the health system, the care system. And his view is the primary goal of the care system is to support the individual, family, and community in providing care, which doesn't mean transferring the responsibility to them. But too often, one of the characteristics of our system is it kind of shoves family and community out of the way or even almost incentivizes people not to be able to use those informal supports because if you've got that, then the state says, well, we don't need to give you any support in the first place. So I would think Burtzog is an interesting example of how very high quality employment standards are really dynamic place to work, but also a much more kind of progressive and person-centered model of care. That's absolutely right. I mean, families want to do their bit, but what they can't cope with is having to do everything. 
But also I'd make another point here, which is particularly if you look at one of the biggest issues that we face with an ageing population, which is dementia, you cannot actually provide good quality care unless you involve families, because dementia is about losing your memory. And families are the living embodiment of those memories. So a good quality outcome has to involve and support the individual with their families. But we don't think like that because we are so, you know, concerned about either that the state has been withered away and underfunded and services have been cut, that we only focus on how do we get those back up and running, or if you're on the right, arguing that individuals need to do more to support their families. It's not that they don't want to, it's that they can't do everything, particularly as more and more women are working now. So that is the model that we need to get to. I'm under no illusions about how hard change will be after the pandemic. But we have to show light and hope, as you said, because I think too often if the talk is only of a crisis, it seems too big and too overwhelming to change. We actually have to start showing that it's possible to make change. And that will give people confidence that if we put the effort and the resources in, we will get a result. Can we talk specifically, Liz, about care homes? So there are multiple issues here. There's the kind of way the sector's been financialized and all the kind of problems that that is creating. But even more fundamentally than that, look, there are care homes that provide really important care and there are people who need the residential provision. And I, I'm not in any way suggesting that people who have come to the conclusion that their loved ones need to be in residential provision, that there's anything wrong with that. But yet, I wonder whether this will lead to a deeper questioning of a society that warehouses quite so many people in buildings where they're cut off from everybody else. And as I say, runs through quite often quite dubious types of organisations. It's absolutely clear that we will need care homes. You are not going to be able to keep everybody living safe and well in their own homes. But I think we could do more. I've always been a, you know, a long-standing champion of providing as much support to keep people living in their own homes for as long as possible, which is what they want. And also looking at how we change that vision for care homes. You're seeing lots of good organisations now trying to do that kind of intergenerational work where children and young people are coming into care homes, which helps them build their skills and confidence, but also provides that kind of stimulation to elderly people. We need to completely rethink, I believe, our housing models too. I mean, the challenge of our ageing population is not just an issue for social care, it's for planning and housing and a whole range of other issues. But there's also new models like, I know you've worked with Alex Fox from Shared Lives, where elderly and disabled people come into people's own homes and are looked after as a member of the family. So if you're only trying to provide the cheapest possible care because there's not enough funding in the system and because, as you say, there are companies who, my goodness, their financial structures are very, very opaque indeed, you're not starting from the perspective of what people want and what is possible with some different thinking. And also, to be honest, Matthew, when I've been thinking through why has this all gone so badly wrong, I just think that there's all sorts of these structural issues with social care and the undervaluing of care, which I do believe has a gender dimension. But it's also because people don't want to think about what it's like when you're really, really, really old. 
you know, people don't want to think about what they will be like, what they'll look like, what they'll feel like, what their situation is. And we have to have the conversation about what it means to be very old and how we can't just shut people away. If I talk to my own parents, luckily, touch wood, they're okay at the moment and they're living in their own home, but they really feel that elderly people are out of sight, out of mind, not valued, shut out. And that that's wrong because one in four babies born today is going to live to be 100. This shouldn't be a surprise that we're dealing with this. So that is a bigger societal question as well, I think. Let's talk a bit about working in social care as well. You've said earlier on, and I, of course, I completely agree with you, that we've got to get decent pay for social care jobs. We've got to have a complete reimagining of the importance of social care. And of course, part of the issue here is about gender, is that, you know, an area of work that's been dominated by women employees, not surprisingly, has had less status and less reward than it deserved. But is there something broader? Do you think that in a sense, all of us at some point in our lives should do care work, you know, almost like a kind of national care service to, to overcome, in a sense, the issue that you've described, that if you haven't lived through it yourself, you may have a kind of fear of it. And actually spending six months working in a care environment is going to open your eyes and increase your empathy and understanding. It certainly did mine when I first became an MP. You know, I did a shift, but work with care workers and I, it really did open my mind to all sorts of things, the kind of work they did, but also what it's like being very old and also going into care homes. I think that that experience is hugely important. Some of the best training that I've seen, actually for NHS staff, not for care workers, although I think that should happen too, has been where people who receive care themselves and their families have come in to talk about what it's like for example, living with dementia. And I remember meeting a regional rep of the RCN where she was talking about the people coming into nursing and lots of nurses wanting to be in paediatric intensive care and other issues. And she was trying to say, well, your predominant job is going to be caring for elderly people. And if you don't yourself know somebody with dementia, you have to start meeting, talking to and understanding what it's like. And whether we can spread that more widely, I think is a very interesting idea. Now, you've made the point, and it's a very important one, I think, that this is not just about a new funding mechanism, but nevertheless, the issue of funding is going to come back up. And arguably, both major parties have some responsibility for the fact that it's not been possible to develop a national consensus about the fact that we have some hard choices. And in essence, middle class people are going to have to pay a little bit more one way or another to have a social care system that works, whatever the mechanism is. Now, you know, for 20 years, various schemes have been put forward. Maybe none of them have been perfect, but they haven't really been destroyed because they weren't perfect. They've been destroyed because it's been politically opportune to capitalise on the pain you can inflict when a party tries to solve this knotty problem. With that in mind, would you be inclined to work with the government if they were to invite you to work with them to try to produce a social care funding package that did have all party support? Yes, if we could get some good ground rules agreed. I mean, when um, I was a backbencher myself, Norman Lamb and Sarah Wollaston actually went to Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt, as it then was, and proposed a system by which we would work together and we ourselves would try and build that cross-party consensus in all of our parties. And I think the principles for me are, firstly, that you've got to start from this, what kind of vision for social care and healthcare do we want? What's the kind of services and support? That's got to work for disabled adults as well as older people. 
I think that's been one of the issues around the sort of capped care cost model, that if your sole focus is how do you stop people having to sell their home to pay for social care, that's really an issue for elderly people, not so much disabled adults, when we know they are equally important in terms of users of social care. We've got to have a funding mechanism, I think, that absolutely pools resources and shares risks rather than leaving people on their own. And I think any payment mechanism has got to be fair across the generations because I don't think you can ask the working age population alone to pay for the entire costs, extra costs that we need for a better system. Now, if you could get those principles in place, I think that that's a starting point for discussions. What you can't have is one party saying, this is the question we need to answer. If you don't agree with it, you're not being constructive and working with us. That's never going to work. But you're absolutely right. The truth is, any party that has put forward a proposal for funding social care has been obliterated by their political opponents, whether it was the death tax or the dementia tax. And that's letting people down. Liz, thank you so much for giving us your time. I know how incredibly busy you are. And because of that, maybe this last question will seem slightly odd, but we have been asking everyone on this podcast whether spending all this time at home, they have had the time or the inclination to develop any kind of new enthusiasms or hobbies. Have you had any time to do anything like that? I have actually, for the first time in my 48 years, done a bit of cooking. <laughs> I mean, I hate cooking, got to be honest, hate it. But I mean, nothing more than like a risotto, a bit of stirring. It's quite therapeutic. And the other thing, I'm not sure, I mean, I've loved it, but I'm not sure how physically good it is for me. I've got back into running. I had to stop my running because my knees were so knackered. And so I started going to spin and all of that, but all of the gyms are shut. So I've been running again and I've got to admit, I absolutely love it. But that's it. I'm afraid. Risotto and running. Liz, thank you so much for giving us your time and good luck in your work ahead. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith. <laughs>